morning, church. Good morning. I have the, uh, the privilege of introducing our guest speaker this morning. Um, and we've just had an amazing uh, week uh, this past week. On Thursday, we got to learn about uh, two young men that uh, sparked the fire, William Penn and Count Zinzendorf. And one of the things that amazed me about uh, Count Zinzendorf, he started a movement that uh, started a prayer chain that lasted 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for 100 years. If that were going on today, imagine what we could accomplish. So what, what did that lead to? It led to revival in America. And that revival led to the creation of our great nation. Then on Friday, we learned the enemy's tactics on, on uh, what he's doing to some discord and what the enemy's done since he um, fell from heaven and took a third of the angels, and it's been going on since that time. And then Saturday, we got an opportunity to uh, get to know William on a personal level and, and just spend some time in fellowship. It was just a blessed time. Um, but that's led me to a, a Bible verse in 1 Samuel, chapter 8, verse, uh, well, starting in chapter 8, verse 1. And it came to pass, when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Tobiah. And they were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre, took bribes, and perverted judgment. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah, and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel. And when he said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people. In all that they say unto thee, For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. And so I wonder, are we in that time of the same as the children of Israel? Um, <clears throat> so now uh, William's going to uh, come and uh, talk to us uh, a little bit about that uh, today. For those of you who don't know William, he's a nationally known speaker, best-selling author, and president of AmeriSearch Incorporated, a publishing company dedicated to researching America's noble heritage. Bill's America Minute radio feature is broadcast daily across America and on the internet. His faith in history television airs on the PCT network on stations across America via DirecTV. We're truly blessed to have uh, Bill here uh, come to our little corner of the world uh, and most importantly, I have a new friend. So with that, we'll Well, thank you, Jeff and Julie. And I want you to know the Springs Calvary Chapel, how much I respect your pastor and his wife, um, Mike Yost and Cheryl. And uh, join me in thanking the Lord for such a tremendous pastor right here at the Springs Calvary Chapel. At lunch yesterday, we were talking about all the th things in the Philippines they were doing, and, and uh, I'm really, really impressed. So uh, if, if I lived here, I'd be coming to this church. So you are blessed. Well, I have um, a presentation, and I give history talks, and I tell people history is not prophetic, but it is predictive. So past behavior is the best indicator of future performance. And so it's this idea that uh, if we... 
Add, if there's one dot on a page and I ask you where the next dot's gonna be, it could be anywhere. But if I can show you all the dots preceding that dot and I ask you where the next dot's gonna be, you can put a ruler up next to it and sort of plot and say, well, you know, it probably will be up here. And so if all you know is the present, you have no predictive ability. But if you know the past, you're like, hey, human beings act certain ways in certain instances, and we're in one of these instances, maybe this is going to happen. So you add the history together with the prophetic, and you get a pretty good idea where things are headed. So did you know there's approximately, by the way, all this information is in a book called Who is the King in America? And then, uh, oh, I was talking with uh, Simon and Allison, um, and I mentioned my first book. Uh, it's uh, called America's God and Country. It's an encyclopedia of God and country quotes. And so years ago, shortly after I uh, became a Christian uh, as an adult, I was raised in church, but it never really clicked until I was around 23. Um, anyway, my wife volunteered us to teach a junior high Sunday school. And I didn't know uh, very much. Uh, the kids knew more than I did. But um, I ended up having to study and then eventually went to a little Bible school. But um, Oh, is it? Okay. Um, so the uh, long and short, before I'd uh, teach the Bible, I'd pass out uh, some quotes about what some famous people said about the Bible. And uh, after years of collecting those quotes, I put it together, and the book sold a half million copies. And uh, it's been used on the floor of Congress. I actually had the U.S. Supreme Court cite the book by name in a decision in 2014. The little city of Greece, New York, was opening with... Uh, prayer in Jesus' name, their city council meeting. And the ACLU sues to stop him. And, and the, the case goes all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Justice Anthony Kennedy said, well, even our Continental Congress opened with prayer in Jesus' name and gives the prayer. And then it cites the source, W. Federer, America's God and Country. <laughs> so all my friends that write history books said, how did you get the Supreme Court to cite your book by name in the decision? And, but it, it all started with an idea I got teaching Sunday school, see? So you can get ideas, plugging into church and getting involved. Well, um, and thank you, Larissa, for helping with my computer. So um, there's approximately five or 6,000 years of recorded human history. We're talking human beings writing down human records. It's only about five. Do you know writing was invented around 3300 B.C.? Sumerian cuneiform on clay tablets in the Mesopotamian Valley. Take a stick, poke it in clay, right? That's the beginning of writing. Here's Neil deGrasse Tyson, an astrophysicist in his Cosmos TV series, stood in the desert and he said, it was here around 5,000 years ago between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers that we learned how to write. And then Egyptian hieroglyphics were invented around 3000 BC and Chinese pictogram characters around 2600 BC with the yellow emperor and Indus Valley around the same time. Franklin Roosevelt said 5,000 years of recorded history have proven that mankind has always believed in God in spite of the many abortive attempts to exile God. So he uses the number of 5,000. Richard Overly wrote The Times Complete History of the World. No date appears before the start of human civilizations around 5,500 years ago in the beginning of a written or pictorial history. So 5,000 years of records. You know, this one says 5,500. Well, let's round it out to 6,000. Because some of the quotes that some of the founders use, use the, the number. So 6,000 years of recorded history is not that long. It's only 60 people living 100 years each back to back. How many of you have met someone who's lived 100 years? Close to it maybe, maybe a grandmother? We're talking 60 grandmothers and you're all the way back to the beginning of recorded human history. 
everything you've ever known about anything that has ever happened has happened within that period of time. 60 people living 100 years each back to back. All right? But now that we have 6,000 years of records, let's look at them. What do they show? They show there's been a 6,000-year quest to rule the world. So what's the first record we have of a civilization? It's Nimrod, Tower of Babel. First invention ever was the plow. Cain was the tiller of the soil. And then people started hitting each other with them, and they turned into weapons. And then people felt insecure on the farms. They gravi gravitate together to form cities. And um, that was the beginning of civilization. And, um, and whenever you get people together, um, someone's a little bit better at knowing how to fight than the rest. And everyone says, you be our captain. And you fight, you win, that's a good thing. But then this captain has kids and grandkids who claim to be a special family, an elite class, a, a political mob. Before you know it, you got a gang, you got a king. And everybody wants to kiss up to this family and this guy. And if you're not on his good side, you're kicked out of town. And so it just happens. And so the first instance of this is Nimrod, Tower of Babel. Um, the word Nimrod means we shall rebel. And so Nimrod wanted to build the tower so high that if God destroyed the world again with a flood, he could survive on top. That's what Josephus wrote. And he made everybody in town bake bricks and bring them or he would kill them. So it was this defiant against God, oppressive over man. God comes down, confuses the languages, and the people what? Scatter. But it's almost like every generation since has tried to rebuild the Tower of Babel. And each time it comes around, it's a little bit worse because with military advancements, the king can kill more people. Right? Instead of killing with a rock, they, like Cain killed Abel, they kill with a bronze weapon or an iron weapon or a big, long, phalanx spear that Alexander the Great had or scimitar swords that the Muslims had or gunpowder that the Chinese invented. The weapon improves, but it's that same fall. Anyway, this concept of every generation trying to rebuild. Have you ever seen the movie The Terminator with Arnold Schwarzenegger? Right? There's this killer metal robot chasing him, and they blow it up, and everybody in the audience sighs relief. And then the little metal pieces begin to melt into silvery droplets, and then they roll together into this silvery pool like mercury. And then, then the hand of this terminator starts climbing out of this thing, and it somehow reassembles itself and starts chasing them again. And everybody in the audience is like, how do you get rid of this? Well, how do you get rid of this desire in human nature to want to rebuild the Tower of Babel? And um, now, in geometry, there's something called the golden ratio. It's a rate of geometric expansion. It's called phi, P-H-I, and you notice it in seashells, where it does the little circle, then it comes around with a little bit bigger circle, then it comes around with a little bit bigger, bigger circle, and you notice it in tornadoes and in hurricanes and even galaxies. And then it gets applied to other areas of academia, like investments. If an investment's growing at a certain rate, then the investment advisor said, well, it may grow according to this, you know, rate of, you know, phi, or sometimes called the Fibonacci sequence, a number plus the previous number equals the next number, and it keeps growing gradually. And I thought of applying it to history and looking at all the kingdoms that we have records of and see if they sort of grow at the same rate. And they sort of do. So you have Nimrod, Tower of Babel, and then around 2500 BC, you have Gilgamesh, king of Uruk. And he's the first one to build a wall around a city that was a brand new idea. Somebody had to come up with it. And the oldest story ever written in any language is the Epic of Gilgamesh. And it talks about him going on this old, long journey to meet this old guy who survived a global flood. Calls it a global flood. And uh, matter of fact, over 100 ancient civilizations have flood stories in their ancient past. Gee, maybe there really was a flood. 
And then you have Sargon of Akkadia, 2250 B.C., and he conquers a bunch of walled cities from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean, considered the first empire. And then you have 2,000 years of Egyptian pharaohs. And then you have 5,000 years of Chinese emperors. And then you have 700 B.C. Assyria, biggest empire on the planet. Nineveh is the capital. Remember Jonah went there? And uh, they captured the 10 northern tribes of Israel. And then uh, Syria is conquered by Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And Babylon conquered by Cyrus of Persia. And Cyrus has the biggest empire that the world had ever seen up to this point. And, of course, he's the one that let the Jews go back and rebuild their temple. But the Persian Empire is conquered by Alexander the Great uh, around 330 B.C. And he ends up having the biggest empire that planet Earth had ever seen to this point. And then he stopped from going into India. And India gets a leader named Chandra Gupta in the Mara Empire. And he ends up consolidating all these kingdoms. And he has the biggest kingdom, quarter of the world's population, even back then. And then around 25 B.C., Rome has the biggest empire, Augustus Caesar. And uh, he even wanted to have a worldwide tracking system called the census. Right? That was the way that they tracked back then. If, if he could have had 5G and cell phones and cameras and drones, he would have tracked everybody that way. Something about dictators want to track everybody. And, and, um, and then the Ashkemite Empire in Africa. And then 450 A.D., Attila the Hun, with an army of a half a million men, conquers all through Central Asia and all of Europe, and um, he's got the biggest empire. And then he stopped from going into the Byzantine Empire, and it has Justinian. And then Islam comes along in the 7th century. And the brand new military invention was the scimitar sword and the stirrup, and the Muslims conquered all the way from the Persian Gulf to the Atlantic Ocean. They control Spain. But their Muslims are stopped from going into Europe by Charles Martel and his grandson is Charlemagne. And in 800 AD, he's crowned Holy Roman Emperor and he has his biggest empire of all of Europe. And then the Vikings come along, boats with low keels. They go up every river in Europe and they got the biggest empire. And, uh, and then 1200s, Genghis Khan conquers from Korea to Hungary, kills 30 million people. He's got the biggest empire that planet Earth had ever seen up to this point. And then his grandsons, Kublai Khan, runs China. And then Tamerlane in the 1300s, all right, kills 17 million people, controls all Central Asia. Then Russia, Ivan the Terrible, kills 60,000, even his own son. And Russia's 12 time zones. It's enormous. And then you cross the ocean, you got Montezuma controlling Central America with the Aztec Empire and Atahualpa of the Inca Empire. And everybody in the Incan Empire is controlled by the, the king who's a delegate of the sun god. And, and then Spain, 1500s, has the largest empire that planet Earth had ever seen. The sun never set on the Spanish Empire. The, uh, the Philippines are named after his son, King Philip of Spain. And then in the 1600s, France has the biggest empire, Louis XIV, the sun king. And then in the late 17 and through 1800s, Britain has the largest empire that planet Earth had ever seen. 13 million square miles, a half a billion people. Clearly, if any of these kings hadn't died off, any one of them would have been happy to keep killing. And so in that sense, death is a blessing because the devil has to start from scratch again. And um, anyway, uh, in, remember the devil came to Jesus and said, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world for they've been delivered to me and I can give them to whoever I want. 
And Jesus says, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And you think, well, that's pretty audacious of the devil to say all the kingdoms are his. When did he get them? When Adam sinned. The Bible has Adam naming everything in the garden. Naming means you have authority over. You have kids, you name your kids, you have authority over your kids, right? Adam named, he had authority. But the Bible says, to whomever you yield your members' servants to obey, to him you are a servant. The moment Adam obeyed Satan, he was posturing himself as the one taking the orders and the devil as the one being in charge and the devil usurped power and all the kingdoms of the world are ruled through fear. You do what the Sultan Pharaoh Caesar Kaiser says or he will ultimately kill you. And um, now why does this keep repeating itself, right? Why do we see this phi, this, this keep repeating itself but with military and technological advancements these kingdoms get bigger? Because it's in each of our own fallen, selfish human DNA, right? This lust for power like Cain killing Abel, just one king taking a kingdom from another king. St. Augustine called it libido dominandi, the lust to dominate. So you put some babies in a playpen, one will take the rattle from the others. You put some kids on a playground, one's the bully hogging the ball. You put some junior high girls in a clique and one of them is the diva. Right? If you're her friend, you're in, but if you're not her friend, you're out. Um, you put all the natives in the woods, and one of them is an Indian chief, and you put them in an inner city, one of them is a gang leader. And all a king is, is a glorified gang leader. It's a hierarchical system. If you are friends with the king, you are more equal. If you are not friends with the king, you are less equal. And if you're an enemy of the king, you're dead or you're a slave. Right? People, I thought slavery started in 1619. No. <laughs> Wherever you had the first king on top, you had slaves on the bottom. And the kings thought they were being nice by not killing you. Right? Because they, uh, they'd capture you in battle and then they would say, okay, I, I, won't, I won't kill you, but you're going to be. So this pyramid structure to society keeps repeating itself over and over again because wherever you got people, the people end up, this is like the default setting. It's like a, a virus in the human software. And... Um, now, what if you were the king? That'd be pretty cool. And then let's say you have a sister, you really love her, she gets married, has a kid, now the kid's a teenager. And uh, he's hanging around the wrong friends, drinking, partying, and he hits the one with the car, kills him. And now this teenager's facing manslaughter charges, mandatory prison time, and your sister comes begging to you and says, you're not going to let my little Johnny get locked away, are you? It wasn't his fault, those other kids talked him into it, blah, blah, blah. What are you going to say to your sister? Well, I'll let little Johnny off the hook this time, but don't let it happen again. Guess what? As soon as you say that, you are the corrupt dictator. You just sent ripples through your kingdom that if somebody's family or friends with the king, they get special treatment. If they're not family and friends, they don't get it. And if someone wants to point out your favoritism, you're going to want to shut them up. It just happens. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Right? And um, it's like the pull of a magnet, like the law of gravity, a pecking order. The movie Lord of the Rings has a scene where Gandalf tells Frodo, always remember Frodo, the ring is trying to get back to its master. It wants to be found. Power wants to concentrate. It's like Newton's law of gravity. The lesser mass is attracted to the greater mass, right? I mean, it wants to. And um, Tolkien in the Lord of the Rings uh, has the scene where uh, Frodo offers the ring of power to Gandalf. And Gandalf rebukes him. Don't tempt me, Frodo. I dare not take it, not even to keep it safe. 
Understand, Frodo, I would use this ring from a desire to do good, but through me, it would wield the power too great and terrible to imagine. What's he talking about? Kings don't live forever. And every now and then, you get a good king. But he doesn't live forever, so sometimes his power is going to go to his son or grandson that's a lousy king, but doesn't want to give up the power, so he becomes oppressive. What's the Bible example? Joseph is a godly man in Egypt, and he helps concentrate the power into the hands of the Pharaoh. And what did that particular Pharaoh do with that power? He fed the children of Israel, gave them the best land to Goshen, even gave them jobs taking care of his cattle. But then there was a new Pharaoh that did not know Joseph. And he used all that concentrated power to oppress the children of Israel, make them slaves, and even throw their sons in the Nile River. So that's the dilemma. We get our guy in, and it's like, oh, we'll let him usurp a little power because he's pushing our agenda. But then he hands all that power to the next administration, and they use it oppressively, right? And so if you track it, you see this Cain killing Abel, Nimrod Tower of Babel, 2,000 years of Pharaoh, Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan. Clearly, there's a global goal in mind, and at some point, it's going to max out on a global scale. And it's almost um, like the... Um, the spiritual descendants of Cain are always trying to kill the spiritual descendants of Abel, right? Uh, Cain worshiped God through works. We know it's works because God told Adam, the ground is cursed for your sake. You'll bring forth fruit by the sweat of your brow. So he's trying to work his way to heaven. Abel's trusting in the lamb, right? And uh, anyway, so, uh, so Jesus, uh, he tells the disciples, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. But, Ye shall not be so. He that is greatest among you, let him be as he that doth serve. I am among you as he that serveth. What's he talking about? Jesus is saying, my kingdom's different. Instead of top down, it's bottom up. Right? Now, in reading through ancient civilizations, I saw three things that kept repeating themselves. One is people groups would transition from hunter-gatherers to agriculture. Right? Even the Bible has Adam and Eve plucking the fruit off the tree, but then it says Cain was a tiller of the soil. And once people groups would make this transition from hunter-gathering to agriculture, they would need to know when to plant the crops. So they would need to keep track of the seasons, which means they'd have to keep track of the stars to see when the seasons were going to change. And so they had this fascination with the stars, and they would build big immovable structures to observe the stars, Stonehenge, ziggurats, pyramids, Cokie mounds, and then somebody got to go up this structure, observe the stars, see when the seasons are about to change, and would come down with his secret knowledge from heaven as to when to plant the barley. <laughs> and over time, this guy would claim to be an intermediary between the heavens above and these ignorant people down below and would begin to claim that they were divinely appointed. And right, and so this was this concept uh, that the Babylonian Assyrian kings claimed to be king priests and the Egyptian pharaohs claimed to be the son of the god Osiris and the Roman emperors claimed to be divine. Uh, the a word august means divine and they would demand their image be worshipped and the early Christians would refuse. And the Chinese emperors ruled by claiming they had a mandate from heaven. Inca emperors claimed to be delegates of the sun god. Muslim caliphs claimed to be successors of the messenger of Allah. 
India had rajas, which is the word for king, and they were a semi-divine caste of rulers. Japanese emperors were heavenly sovereigns, and then they Christianized it in Europe and called it the divine right of kings. God chose me to be the king, so I can pretty well do anything I want, and if you're challenging me, you're challenging God. And so this concept is the creator gives all the power to the king, and he dispenses it to all the lowly people down below. And here's the king of France, Louis XIV, the sun king. He said, I am the state. One time he's doing something and they say, king, you can't do it. It's illegal. He says, it is legal because I wish it. Oh, okay, I get it. Law is nothing more than the king's wishes. And he just happens to have a really powerful army to make you obey. Uh, king James, right? Jamestown's named after him. He says, kings are God's lieutenants upon earth, sit upon God's throne. The king is the overlord of the whole land, master over every person, having power over the life and death of everyone. Can you begin to see why the founding fathers wanted to break away from a king? So the king of England was a globalist. He was a one-world government guy with him at the top. He had this enormous global empire, and our founders didn't like a, a globalist telling us what to do, so they broke away. It took centuries, millennium, for America's founders to get a chance for us to rule ourselves without a king. And they knew it. Here's James Wilson, a signer of the Declaration. He said, after a period of 6,000 years since creation, the United States exhibit to the world the first instance of a nation assembling voluntarily and deciding that system of government under which they should live. He uses the number 6,000, and he said something unique happened in America. Daniel Webster, Secretary of State, says, Miracles do not cluster. What has happened once in 6,000 years may not happen again. Hold on to the Constitution, for if the American Constitution should fail, there will be anarchy throughout the world. Why would there be anarchy throughout the world if America's Constitution fails? Because for 6,000 years, people have been struggling under Pharaoh, Caesars, Kaisers, Sultans, Tsars, dictators, El Presidentes, Chairman Mao's, you know, and they would say, Chief, only we could rule ourselves without a king. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And in America, we did it. And if we blow it, there's nothing left for humanity to look forward to this side of heaven other than being under a dictator. So how did America's government come about? Well, let's jump into history. First three centuries, there's persecution, then there's Attila the Hun, but then Islam comes along. And um, Muhammad goes from being a religious leader to a political leader to a military leader, and he fights in 66 battles, killing 3,000 people. And so his followers decide to conquer Yemen, which used to be a Jewish kingdom. They conquer Arabia. They conquer uh, a holy land. Jerusalem had been a Byzantine Christian city since Constantine, right? He built all these big cathedrals. And then the Muslims conquer Syria. Syria was the first country to completely be Christian, evangelized by the Apostle Paul until Caliph Umar conquered it. And then Egypt had been completely Christian for six centuries, evangelized by Mark that wrote the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, until the Muslims conquered it. And then there used to be 250 Catholic dioceses along North Africa. Right? Morocco, Algiers, Tunisia, Libya, it was all Christian. St. Augustine the Hippo was from Tunisia, um, right? And then the Muslims invaded Spain. Spanish kingdoms were fighting, and one of them gets the bright idea to bring the Muslims across to help their side, and they got the stirrup and the scimitar sword, and the Europeans are still on foot, so in 10 years, the Muslims conquer all of Spain. 
They crossed the Pyrenees, they conquered southern France. They're finally stopped outside of Paris at the Battle of Tours in 732 AD, just 100 years after the death of Muhammad in 632 AD. And then the Turks convert to Islam and they conquer into what is today Turkey. All seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation were wiped out by Muslim Turks. And when they conquer, uh, the, 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 through the destroyed churches and libraries, the Christians cry out for help. The West sends help. It's called the Crusades. Go on for two centuries. When the Crusades end, the Muslims conquer Constantinople, cutting off the land routes to India. And that's when Columbus set sail looking for a sea route. Columbus would have never set sail had it not been. Matter of fact, Columbus ran into some islands. He thought he made it to India. So he named the people he met Indians. Think of it. We never would have called Native Americans Indians had it not been for Islamic Jihad. We call them Indians because Columbus gave them that name because Columbus was trying to get to India. Why was Columbus trying to get to India in 1492? Because in 1453, the Muslims conquered Constantinople, cutting off the land routes to India. Anyway, so by the 1500s, the Muslim empire is ruled by Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent and the, his counterparts, the Catholic Holy Roman Emperor, who controls Spain, the Netherlands, parts of Italy and Austria, and then the New World. And um, so these are the two most powerful kings on the planet. So the premise I'm making is that kings are the most, this, kings are the default setting, gang leaders, all right? And um, so now we got the two most powerful kings. In the middle of this, the Reformation starts with Martin Luther, 1517. The king of Spain is trying to stop the Reformation, trying to stop the Muslims, and he can't, so he does a deal with the Protestants, right? And so the deal is called the Peace of Augsburg of 1555. And um, it's a big Big deal, treaty. It's the first treaty ever to recognize Protestants. And I, I took some German in college. Do you know how to say 1555 in German? 1555. <laughs> I think it's... Anyway, so the... Uh, in this treaty is a little Latin phrase that made a big deal. It was cuius regio eus religio, which means whose is the reign, his is the religion. So look, Protestant king, believe whatever you want. Let's just work together against this Islamic invasion because they sort of want to kill us all. And it worked. It stopped the invasion. But in the next century, it turned into one Christian denomination per country. What the king believed, the kingdom had to believe. And if you didn't believe the way your king did, you fled. And so northern Germany and Sweden was Lutheran, Switzerland, Calvinist, Scotland, Presbyterian, Holland, Dutch Reform, Greece, Greek Orthodox, Spain, Portugal, France, Austria, Italy, Poland, Catholic, and England, Anglican. And so it went from all of Western Europe was Catholic to now each king believes a different thing for his kingdom. And if you don't believe the way your king did, it's treason. And so now Europe is thrown into this mass migration of people going from one kingdom to another and wars. And so if you didn't believe the way your king did, it was treason. And so let's look at England. England has a king, Henry VIII. He's Catholic. He's married to the daughter of the king of Spain, Catherine of Aragon. After 18 years, Catherine does not have a son. A daughter Mary, but not a son. So Henry decides to divorce her. The Pope won't recognize the divorce because she is, after all, the daughter of the most powerful guy in the world. And the king of Spain's army invaded Rome in 1527 and imprisoned the Pope. So the Pope said to Henry, uh, I'm not going to recognize your divorce from the daughter of the King of Spain. And Henry says, you know what? I'm far enough away from Italy. I'm just going to declare myself my own Pope. 
He starts the Church of England, puts himself on as the head, and he goes on to have six wives. And their fates were divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. <laughs> so Henry VIII was not a really nice guy to be married to. And um, he ended up being, uh, anyway, all he ate was meat, and he thought vegetables were sissy food, and he got like 400 pounds, he got gout in his leg. Anyway, um, <laughs> not a nice guy to be married to. Well, uh, Henry's advisors told him, if you're serious about breaking from Rome, you need to stop using that Latin Bible. Get yourself an English Bible. The German princes have Martin Luther's German Bible. That helped them to break away. You, you need an English Bible. Henry says, great, get me one. Well, it just so happens a few years earlier, Henry VIII had William Tyndall burnt at the stake for translating the Bible into English. But now the king wants an English Bible. And William Tyndall's last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And so a couple years later, the king, right after he kills William Tyndall, his eyes are open. He wants that English Bible. And so they take William Tyndall's work, polish it up a little bit, call it the Great Bible. And Henry decides he wants a copy of it put in every church in England. There were other scholarly translations, but the common people could, didn't have access to it, a bishop's Bible and stuff. But this is the first one, and they, they chained it to the pulpit because it was so valuable because they didn't want anybody walking off with it. So it was nicknamed the Chained Bible. And, I mean, people would rent time with it. Okay, your turn's up. I mean, you know, 15 minutes. Next, next, you know. This is the first. They could actually read it, right? And... Um, and King Henry dusts his hands. He goes, that's it. We broke from Rome, got our own English Bible. But something unexpected happened. People began to read it and began to compare what's in this Bible to this king divorcing and beheading his wives and claiming to be the head of Christ's church on earth. And so a group started that wanted to purify the Church of England, and they were nicknamed the Puritans. And the king didn't think he needed any purifying. He thought he was fine just the way he was. So he persecutes the Puritans. And there's another group that said it's beyond hope of purifying. We're flat out going to separate ourselves. And they were nicknamed separatists. They would meet in secret in barns and basements by candlelight. Every now and then they get raided, they get arrested, and, uh, and we call them pilgrims. You know, and then some of them turn into Baptists and Quakers. and There's lots of these little bitty groups that break off. And the king's attitude was, wait a second. Yes, you can read the Bible in your own language, but no, you still can't believe whatever you want. you got to believe what I tell you to believe. And so they passed the Act of Uniformity of Common Prayer. You do not make up a prayer because you could make up one that is wrong. So we've written all the prayers down and we put them in a book. I call it the Book of Common Prayer. And you just open it up to the right page and read the prayer. And then they passed the Five Mile Act. If you're caught preaching without approval of the government within five miles of town, you have broken the five-mile act. You'll be arrested and dragged before the star chamber and because it had stars on the ceiling. And they would brand you on the face as a heretic. They'd cut off your ear, even cut your nose in half. And then they passed the conventicle act. comes from the word covenant. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst. And... Um, and so people would meet in small groups and they would pray and read the Bible. And the king didn't want them to do that. And so the, they'd arrest you. 
they later changed the name of the Conventicle Act to the Riot Act because you could be planning a riot in your home. And so here you're having a Bible study. The police knock the door down and they pull out a piece of paper and read the Riot Act, which says everyone must immediately disperse or you will be arrested, put in jail where you'll probably die. It was so serious it went into our vernacular. Read them the Riot Act. Do you know who was captured during this act? It was uh, John Bunyan. He had a Bible study of too many people and the police come and arrest him. They're dragging him away and he yells out, better to be persecuted than be the persecutor. He spent, spent 12 years in prison. And that's when he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Well, one of the other ones um, that was captured was Thomas Hellwise. He was considered one of the founders of the Baptist faith in England. And he was arrested and put in prison, the Newgate prison where he dies. Um, but Thomas Hellwise wrote this, The king is a mortal man and not God. Therefore, he hath no power over the mortal soul of his subjects to make laws and ordinances for them to set up spiritual lords over them. If the king's people obey all humane laws made by the king, our lord the king can require no more. For men's religion to God is betwixt God and themselves. The king shall not answer for it. Neither may the king be judged between God and man. In other words, if, if the king can stand there next to you on the day of judgment and answer for your conscience, fine, believe whatever the government tells you to believe. But, but if, if the government's not going to be there on the day of judgment, you're accountable to God for your own conscience. And you can see how kings didn't like that. We don't want you following your conscience. You just do what we tell you to believe. And um, anyway, so one of these separatist groups, we call them the pilgrims, they sold all their property. They went down to the coast. They bought a ticket to Holland. Holland had seven provinces, and it took them 80 years to break away from Spain. But these provinces didn't always agree on stuff, and so they had a little give and take when it came to religion. So Holland was the most tolerant place in Europe, and so the pilgrims say, let's go there. So anyway, a group sells their property, buys a ticket to go to Holland, and right before the boat leaves, the captain robs them, turns them over to the police, and they're thrown in jail. Another group of these separatists decide, hey, let's just have a Dutch ship come along the coast and we'll get little rowboats and we'll row out and get on and then we'll take off. Well, the pilgrims show up a day early and it gets really rocky and the kids are getting sick and the wives say, can we just wait on the shore with the kids? And then the Dutch ship comes and the men row out and they're stowing everything on there and before they can come back for the wives and children, someone snitched. The British soldiers come over the hill, capture the women and children. And the Dutch captain says, uh, I don't have an army with me. He pulls anchor and sails away with the men. You can imagine these wives on the shore watching that boat getting smaller and smaller until it disappears over the horizon. For two years, they passed those women and children from one jail and one court in England to another to another. Finally, a judge says, you really didn't do anything wrong. Go home. They go, duh, we sold our homes. So just to get them out of their hair, they put them on a boat, sent them to Holland. They somehow found out where their husbands were, and there was a happy ending to that chapter. But they're in Holland for, for 12 years. And the kids are learning the Dutch language. They're about to assimilate, and um, Spain's threatening to attack. And the pilgrims said, well, you know what? We're just going to be a one-generation movement, and we're just going to, you know, turn into to Dutch. And, and they decided, well, we want to do our, our pilgrim thing. And so they decided to leave Holland, and then go to England and get on a, a boat that got to Godspeed, but, but it ended up leaking, in, or Speedwell, rather. And then they um, 
got swapped it for the Mayflower. And so, long and short, it takes a 66-day journey, 102 of them. They're confined, confined to the four-foot-high space called the Between Deck. And it's stormy, and they finally get to North America, and they find out that they're 500 miles off course from Jamestown. They're way north in Massachusetts. And they try sailing down the coast, but off the coast of Cape Cod, it's really shallow. And 3,000 ships have wrecked off the coast of Cape Cod. It's called the Graveyard of Ships. And um, so the Pilgrim captain says it's too dangerous, the Mayflower captain. And so he goes back to Plymouth Rock and he says, everyone off the boat. And uh, the Pilgrims say, we, we have a question. Who's going to be in charge of us? We were going to go to Jamestown and submit to the king's government, but now you're telling us to get off and there's no king appointed person in our group. Who's going to be in charge? They do something unique. They give themselves the authority to start a government. It's called the Mayflower Compact. And it says, we, in the presence of God, covenant ourselves together into a civil body politic to enact just and equal laws that shall be thought most meet or necessary unto which we promise all due submission. Simple, revolutionary. It was a polarity change in the flow of power. Instead of top-down rule by kings and pharaohs and Caesars and Kaisers, it's ruled bottom-up by we. It's just us in this little boat, and we're going to decide to covenant ourselves together and pass laws that we think we need to and then to submit to them. It's the difference between a dead pyramid ruled top-down and a living tree where every root and every little capillary root helps suck in nutrients to help keep the tree alive. It's a bottom-up form of government. It's the difference between divine right of kings and we the people. Where did, the, where did the pilgrims get this idea? From their pastor, John Robinson. He was not an Anglican king-appointed pastor. He was a congregationalist pastor. And um, this painting hangs in our U.S. Capitol with an open Bible. So the pilgrim congregational style of church government is where everybody's involved. And um, it's this idea that the pastor's job is to get everybody born again and have their own relationship with God and then coach them to grow in spiritual maturity, develop Bible reading habits, right, and read through the Bible and, and then have uh, mature Christians to encourage them and to plug in and to get involved with the nursery and the junior high and the children's church and the, you know, senior high. And then as you become a mature Christian, the body of Christ grows, Right? And, um, and so the Greek word is ecclesia or ecclesia and uh, 6,000 citizens of Athens and they would get, ek means out of, ecclesia means a calling. They would call the citizens out of Athens into the Agora marketplace and they would decide what needs to be done and defend the city and so forth. And they got this idea from the ancient Israelites, the assembly that first 400 year period before King Saul. But Jesus, when he said, upon this rock I'll build my church, that word for church is ecclesia, or ecclesia. And so Jesus is saying, look, we're going to build a body of people, right? The pastor's job is to teach you how God moved in the past, so if he's going to tell you anything, it's going to line up with that, so you don't get off into crazy stuff, right? And, um, but it's this idea that there's somebody's an eye, somebody's an ear, somebody's a foot. Everybody has something to do. Now, this is different than the hierarchical model which is what the king had. And the king is in charge, then you got the Archbishop of Canterbury, and then the Archbishop of York, and then these other bishops, and deaneries, and vicars, and curates, and all this stuff. It's all hierarchical. 
Like your relationship with God is through this hierarchical structure. And, um, and so the king persecuted the Congregationalists. And so a bunch of them fled. So the pilgrims are over here 1620 to 1630. The Puritans are still trying to purify the church and they uh, decide to flee in 1630. And so you have a great migration. About 20,000. There's only a couple hundred pilgrims. There's 20,000 Puritans. They settle Massachusetts. Now, why is this significant? Well, in England, the Puritans did not like the king telling them how to have church. But once 20,000 of them come to Massachusetts, they sort of are the government. And so they decide maybe it's not such a bad thing that the government tell the church out of church because we're in charge. And so the non-conforming pastors say, no, 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 you're still not supposed to tell the church how to have church. And so the non-conforming pastors would flee again. And so you had a Reverend John Lothrop and his church fled uh, Boston and founded Barnstable, Massachusetts. And a Reverend Roger Williams and his church fled and founded Providence, Rhode Island and the first Baptist church in America. And the Reverend John Wheelwright and his church fled and founded Exeter, New Hampshire. And um, then a Reverend Thomas Hooker and his church fled and founded Hartford, Connecticut. This was unique on planet Earth where you had kings and sultans and pharaohs and Caesars. You got pastors and their churches forming communities. And this is 50 years before Europe's Age of Enlightenment and John Locke's treaties of, on government. Uh, these are pastors fleeing. So Thomas Hooker fled and founded Hartford. You know what the difference was? Puritans said only Puritans should, could vote in elections. Thomas Hooker said, no, anybody that's a Christian should be a, allowed to vote in elections. That was a big enough deal for Pastor Hooker to say, okay, next Saturday meet in the parking lot with your wagons and cows, we're leaving. And they go hill and dale and they founded Hartford and while they're there in Hartford, the church members go to the pastor and they say, Pastor, can you preach a sermon on how we're supposed to set up our government? So he gives a sermon in 1638 titled, The Foundation of Authority is Laid Firstly in the Free Consent of the People. And this is reflected in our declaration, government from the consent of the governed. And this is unique on planet Earth because the, the foundation of government in Europe was divine right of kings. Right? The king gives all of his authority, or the, king, the God gives authority to the king. Thomas Hooker goes on, the privilege of election belongs to the people. This is reflected in our constitution. We, the people. Right? And um, then Thomas Hooker says, they who have the power to appoint officers and magistrates, it is in their power also to set the bounds and limitations of their power. His sermon's written down. It's called The Fundamental Orders of Connecticut, and it is the Constitution of Connecticut from 1639 up until 1818. They're using the pastor's sermon as their constitution. And 1818, that's after the Revolution. Yeah, other states got rid of their charters and put in constitution. Not Connecticut. They go, we've been using Pastor Hooker's sermon. It's been working for us just fine. They used it up till 1818. And uh, historian John Fisk called it the first written constitution history, became a blueprint for the other New England colonies, and eventually the Constitution. That's why Connecticut has the Constitution state on their license plate. And so here's a plaque in England. Thomas Hooker, founder of the state of Connecticut, father of American democracy. Here's a guy you never heard of before. And over there, they think he's the father. Here's another plaque in England. Thomas Hooker, Puritan clergyman, reputed father of American democracy. Here's a statue of Thomas Hooker holding a Bible on the old Capitol grounds in Hartford, Connecticut, 
at the base of the statue, it says, leading his people through the wilderness, he founded Hartford. On this site, he preached the sermon, which inspired the fundamental orders. It was the first written constitution that created a government. Here's another plaque in Hartford. It says, Thomas Hooker preached his famous sermon, the foundation of authority is laid in the free consent of the people. And then the representatives of the people adopted as the fundamental orders of Connecticut. What do the fundamental orders say? The people can join ourselves to be as one public state or commonwealth. Sounds a lot like the Pilgrim Mayflower Covenant. We covenant ourselves together into a civil body politic. Why? To preserve the liberty and purity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus, which we now profess. In other words, they picked the form of government that would best preserve the Christian religion. Right? It wasn't like, oh, we got to get rid of Christianity because of our government separation of church and state. No, no, no. They picked the government that would best preserve the freedom of religion. Now, when they says the liberty, they understood that the purity of the gospel is you not being forced, but you having the freedom to choose. Here is another plaque in Hartford. They have lots of plaques in Hartford. This one says, Thomas Hooker's congregation established the form of government upon which the present Constitution of the United States is modeled. Do you grasp the significance of this? He, he simply took his congregational form of church government, everybody's involved, and made it their community government, everybody's involved. So in New England, instead of separation of church and state, it was the pastors and their churches that created the state. How could you say pastor? Don't talk, don't talk about politics. When it's the pastor's sermon that's their constitution. How could you say church members don't get involved in politics when all there was in Hartford was the church members? There were like no other people other than the church members that they could be lazy and, and you know, delegated to. No, the word politics comes from the Greek word polis, which means city. Metropolis, Indianapolis, Minneapolis, right? And so politics is simply the business of the city. And in the city of Hartford, all there were were church members. So all the church members were involved in the business of the city. And um, they're involved in their church, congregational model, they're involved in their community. And um, matter of fact, they had one building called the Meeting House. And in this building, pastor would teach the Bible, but in this building they would elect their city elders. I mean, why build an entirely separate building just to talk about a different subject? And they got that concept meeting house from the Hebrews. Do you know what the word synagogue means? Meeting house. And in every synagogue, that's where the uh, rabbi would teach the scriptures, but that's where they would meet and elect their city elders. So the king didn't like that. He didn't like people meeting. And, and so when the Revolutionary War starts, the British military governor of Massachusetts is Thomas Gage. He comes over here. He outlaws town hall meetings. He says, we don't need the people meeting and passing resolutions. You just do what the king tells you. That was the struggle with the revolution. The king wanting to force his will and the people say, no, we want our will. And uh, Thomas Gage says, democracy is too prevalent in America. Here's Calvin Coolidge said the principles which went into the Declaration of Independence are found in the sermons of the early colonial clergy. They preached equality because they believed in the fatherhood of God, brotherhood of man. See, the, the king of England didn't believe in equality. He believed he was a little extra special. <laughs> he was divinely appointed, right? But here, they're preaching, no, everybody's equal. Calvin Coolidge, in order that they might have freedom to express these thoughts and opportunities to put them into action, 
Whole congregations with their pastors migrated to the colonies. So in New England, they did an experiment. These pastors realized that the kingdom of God could never be forced from the top down. Not dominionism, not top down. They came from Europe and they saw kings burning people at the stake for not believing the way the king did. And they saw in the scriptures that Jesus never forced anybody to believe in him. All right, multiplied loaves and fishes, had a crowd following him for a free lunch, wanting to make him king. And it's almost like he said something that he knew would be difficult for them to understand to shake away those following him for the wrong reasons. And it says many disciples said, this is a difficult saying, who can bear it? And they, they walk with him no more. Jesus didn't run after them and say, wait a second, come back, you misunderstood me. Or he didn't run after them with a sword. Say, get back here or I'll chop your head off. No, he turns to Peter and says, you want to leave too? There's the door. Peter says, where else can I go? You're the only one with the words of eternal life. In other words, Jesus was doing a little sifting. He just wanted those that the, your brain may not totally understand it, but your heart knows that he's the one that changed your life. And so we go through times in life when our brain can't understand what we're going through, but our heart knows that Jesus is the answer, like the songs we sing. So if Jesus himself never forced anybody to follow him, we can't. And so if in this New England experiment, if the kingdom of God cannot be forced by the government from the top down, how's it going to happen? Well, they thought if the majority of the people held godly values and elected representatives with those values, then laws would be passed reflecting those values and the values of the kingdom could come voluntarily percolating from the bottom up, not forcibly shoved from the top down. So this is the change that happened in New England. Instead of divine right of kings, creator, king, people, it's the creator gives the rights and freedoms and powers to every single individual person and we're all equal and we choose from amongst equals who's going to fix the potholes in the road? Right? Who's going to cook the meals? Who's going to do the, we're dividing up responsibilities. Calvin Coolidge says, placing every man on a plane where he acknowledged no superiors, he must inevitably choose his own rulers through a system of self-government. Now, where did the pastors get this idea? Well, they got a little from the English Magna Carta and tying the king's hands. They got a little bit from the, the Roman Republic and the Athenian democracy, but ultimately ancient Israel that first 400 years out of Egypt. Do you know they were so into uh, studying ancient Israel that after the Reformation from 1517 up until the Age of Enlightenment in the early 1600s, you had a century where the scholars are not just thrilled they can read the Bible in their own language, but they focus on a part of the Bible, that first 400-year period when Israel came out of Egypt before they got King Saul. We don't appreciate the book of Judges until you research all the other kingdoms of the world that were in existence at that time. And they're all kings and emperors and, you know, King Og of Ashan, everything's kings. And here's Israel for 400 years, no king? And so this was studied, it's called the Hebrew Republic. And the Puritan, you know, Protestant scholars that studied it were nicknamed Christian Hebraists. They became experts on the Jerusalem Talmud and Maimonides, a, a, a famous rabbi, and, and the Mishnah and the Torah and all this type of stuff. And so they taught Hebrew at Yale and Harvard. This is Yale's coat of arms. It has Hebrew characters on it. And so you think, Bill, did America's founders really look back to ancient Israel? I found prima facie evidence. The U.S. Constitution is written but it needs to be ratified by nine states before it goes into effect. 
They had eight, and New Hampshire was in line to be the ninth, but they have a deadlock, and they're about to vote against it. So Samuel Langdon, the president of Harvard, gives an address to the New Hampshire Ratifying Convention, 1788, and the title of his address, The Republic of the Israelites, an Example to the American States. Instead of the 12 tribes of Israel, we may substitute the 13 states of the American Union and see this application plainly. After his address, they vote, they ratify it. They're the ninth state to ratify it, and our U.S. Constitution goes into effect. Our U.S. Constitution literally went into effect after the sermon, the Republic of the Israelites, an example to the American states. So let's look at this Republic of the Israelites, this first 400 years out of Egypt. There's no king. This is the first time that you have millions of people and no king. And since there's no king and no royal family, there's, there's nobody to butter up next to. Everybody's equal. And the law specifically says there is no respect of persons in judgment. Rich or poor, everyone is to be treated the same. Male, female, made in the image of the creator. This is the beginning of the concept of equality on planet Earth. You mean, you mean everybody I see is equal to me? There's no royal family somewhere to butter up next to? Israel came up with this idea of tolerance. Instead of believing something or you're, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, when I blow the trumpet, you bow to my statue. No, they realize your worship of God is only pleasing to God if it is voluntarily given. So they had strangers amongst them. They didn't force them to grab a lamb and drag it to the temple. Israel was the first nation with private land ownership. Wherever there's a king, you never really own the land. It's always conditional of you staying on the nice side of the king. You cross the king He'll take away the land and kill you. In Israel, every family was given land. And uh, the Bible called that being blessed. And you can be moved upon in your heart to give away some stuff. The Bible called that charity. And um, ancient Israel had no police. Everyone was taught the law. Everyone helped enforce the laws. Like everybody was deputized. We have a little of that with traffic laws. Somebody cuts you off, you take it upon yourself to honk the horn. Or maybe a mom watching a bunch of neighborhood kids, she has no problem correcting somebody else's kid. In ancient Israel, everybody corrected everybody else. Self-pleasing system. The kids were taught the law. And you appreciate this when you realize only one, you know, that the other countries, it was illiterate. And so God chose Abraham uh, because he knew he would teach his children the ways of the Lord, do justice, to teach thy children and thy grandchildren and so forth. Now Israel had no standing army. Right? You have a king, he has an army to enforce his will. In Israel, every man was in the militia and armed with a sword upon their thigh and ready at a moment's notice to defend his wife and family and children and the community. Israel had no prisons. When a, in Egypt, Joseph was in prison for several years. But in Israel, when a crime was committed, you got the elders and the accused, you went to the gates of the city and you had the trial immediately. And then there was a city of refuge you could run away to await a trial. Israel had a bureaucracy-free welfare system. What's that? In Egypt, people were selling their souls to the Pharaoh for a handout. But in Israel, when you harvested your field, you left the corners, the gleanings for the poor people to pick through. Like Ruth, this way the poor were taken care of without some political leader collecting everything and doling it back out as favors in exchange for votes, right? <laughs> Israel had a system of honesty where God hates unjust weights and measures. This became the basis for commerce. And Israel got to choose their own leaders of their villages and towns and cities and so forth. 
So Moses spake unto the children of Israel, How can I myself alone bear your burden? Take you, wise men, and understanding, and known among your tribes, and I'll make them rulers over you. This was an election process within the tribe. You know the people that hate covetousness and you just flat out can't bribe them no matter what, right? You know those people. And so every little community would elect them. It wasn't, there was no king to send his person into the town to say, okay, you enforce my will with an army. No, the people elected their own leaders. So anyone could be raised up in leadership. Here's Gideon from a nobody family. Here's Deborah, a woman, becomes a national leader, not because she's related to royalty, she just knows the law. She's honest. Her reputation spreads. She sits under a tree. People make their way all the way across the country for her to hear their case and tell them what the, what the law says. Where else in the world at this time could a woman become a national leader who's not related to royalty? It's just her. So Harvard President Samuel Langdon finishes his address to the New Hampshire legislature. He says, the Israelites may be considered as a pattern to the world in all ages of government on Republican principles from abject slavery, a mere mob, to a well-regulated nation under laws far superior to what any other nation could boast. Let's look at that. From abject slavery. They're slaves. They can't even read. And suddenly, they get downloaded, this complete package software system <laughs> of, that works. It wasn't trial and error like the Greeks or Romans. Oh, we'll try this a little while. No, it was a complete package system. And uh, Israel was the first nation that could read. So in Sumeria, they had 1,500 cuneiform characters. Remember, take a stick, poke it in clay. I don't know about you, but memorizing 1,500 anythings is not fun. Egypt had 3,000 hieroglyphic characters. Only 1% of Egypt could read. Reading and writing was the scribes' secret knowledge. They kept, kept the hieroglyphs complicated on purpose as job security. Um, China had 10,000 characters only for court records. For the emperor, only the upper class could read. It was like the deep state. They knew their under-the-table plans, but everybody else is kept in the dark. Uneducated people are easier to control. We had a little of that in America prior to the Civil War, where in some of the southern states, they had laws making it a crime to teach slaves to read. Frederick Douglass, the Republican advisor to Abraham Lincoln, wrote in his autobiography of growing up on a plantation, Slave master's sister-in-law was teaching him the alphabet. Her husband walks in, yells at her, says, don't you dare teach slaves to read. They'll grow discontent. They'll be able to run away. Frederick Douglass said, that was the first sermon that convinced me that I wanted to learn how to read. Anthropologist Claude Levi Strauss, ancient writing's main function was to facilitate the enslavement of other human beings. So when Moses comes down the mountain, he does not just have the law. He has the law in a 22-character alphabet. First letter's Aleph, second letter Beth. Sound familiar? It is so easy to learn. Kids can learn to read. No longer was it this secret knowledge of the ruling class. It is a literate populace. So Moses, the priest, not just taught the law. They taught him how to read it for themselves. Here's a quote from Eupolemus, 158 B.C. Moses was the first wise man that taught the alphabet to the Jews, who passed it to the Phoenicians, passed it to the Greeks. Harriet Truman said the fundamental basis of this nation's laws was given to Moses on the Mount. Margaret Sanger, I mean, Margaret Sanger, Margaret Thatcher, <laughs> Margaret Sanger's Planned Parenthood. This is Margaret Thatcher. And um, she said the Decalogue, Ten Commandments, are addressed to each and every person. This is the origin of our common humanity and the sanctity of the individual. 
Your founding fathers came over with that. They looked after one another, not only as a necessity, a matter of necessity, but as a matter of duty to their God. So, think of government as a line with total government on one side, no government on the other side. Total government, you get a king who rules through fear. You do what he says or he kills you. The other side is no government. That would be anarchy. No government unless each citizen is taught the law. I'm trying to think of a way of explaining it. Um, and I mentioned this Friday, I think. But imagine if each person downloads a behavioral app on their iPhone. Instead of a GPS app telling you where to turn, imagine a behavioral app, right? Don't lose your temper at this person and don't lie and, you know, don't uh, steal. And, and so the Levites were the computer geeks that help you to download this app. Now, now, where do you go to get that? Okay, go to, you know, Google, uh, Apple Store, Google Play, and line upon line, precept upon precept, press this little button here. So the Levites help everybody in Israel to download this behavioral app called the law. And then the big question is, why would you follow it? What would motivate you to follow an internal moral? Israel had the key ingredient. There's a God who's watching everyone. He wants you to be fair. He's going to hold you accountable in the future. So you're about to steal. Nobody's around. You know you can get away with it. And then you think, God's watching me. He wants me to be fair. He's going to hold me accountable in the future. Maybe I should hesitate stealing. And it creates something in your head called the conscience. If everybody in the country believes this, you can maintain complete order with no police, right? Women can go anywhere without fear. You don't have to lock your doors, right? Now, God knew the Israelites would sin, and rather than them walk around the rest of their life with a guilty conscience, once a year, they had the Day of Atonement, and everybody's sins are forgiven, and they get to start the new year off with a clean slate. And that's obviously referring to Jesus. And Reagan said, without God, there's no virtue because there's no prompting of the conscience. Without God, laws are just made up by a bunch of old men. Why follow them? Um, Democrat candidate for president, 1908, William Jennings Bryan, a religion which teaches personal responsibility to God, gives strength to morality. There is a powerful restraining influence in the belief that an all-seeing eye scrutinizes every thought and word and act of the individual. And um, how am I doing time-wise? So... Um, uh, I thought you were supposed to warn me there. <sighs> well, if, if um, the, uh, we see all this from our point of view, let's just take a moment and see things from God's point of view. Here's God. He exists for eternity. Eternity upon eternity upon There's never been a time when God has not existed. And uh, he makes everything and everything obeys him. He make, everything he makes, there's rules. There's laws of planetary motion, laws of gravity, laws of physics, laws of optics. Everything's laws. And he has laws for human behavior. We just have the choice as to whether or not to follow the laws. But he's a God of laws. And um, just to get an idea how big God is. In 2003, they focused the Hubble telescope on a spot in the sky where there was nothing. The spot was so small as the size of a grain of sand held out at arm's length against the night sky there's nothing there. They focused the Hubble telescope. After 11 days, they developed the images. In that little spot was 10,000 galaxies with hundreds of billions of stars in each galaxy. And because light travels in waves, with blue being the shortest and fastest wave and red being slowest and, and longest wave, the, the galaxies had a red shift, which means they're moving away from us. 
And then they, they have the parallax system where they can see how far things are away. It's sort of like, you know, you look at your finger with your eye through one eye, and the other way, the, the close object seems to move in relation to further. So you, you take the far, far away object and you look at it every day as the earth goes around the sun, and you can see that spot from different angles. And the closer ones move more in relation to the further. And so you can figure out the angles and they can figure the distance. They figure out these galaxies are 47 billion light years away. Then they look in the other direction and they estimate that the observable universe is 93 billion light years across. And get this, still expanding at the speed of light. Actually faster than the speed of light because it's going in the speed of light this direction and the speed of light that direction. The largest star they found is Stevenson 2-18. It's a super gas giant. It's so large, if you were to place Stevenson 2-18 in our solar system, it would engulf the orbit of Saturn, the sixth planet from the sun. We're the third planet from the sun. Could you imagine one star that massive? And God made it all. But what's a, what's a galaxy anyway? It's just, it's just a bunch of rocks. Hot rocks, cold rocks, enormous rocks, vaporized. A rock cannot love you. So at some time in eternity past, God said, been there, done that, I can make galaxies. Um, at some time, he said, you know, I would really like someone in my image that could love me. Now it gets interesting, because love by definition must be voluntary. The moment he would force it, he himself would know he's forcing it, and he would know your response is not a love response. So in this framework of everything he controls throughout all of eternity, he makes one little thing that he doesn't control, your will. Now, he could control it if he wanted to, but that would defeat the very reason he made us different than everything else. And he hides his glorious majesty behind creation. Because if he ever revealed himself in all of his universe-creating power, your response would be instinctive. Like the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, I fell at his feet as dead. It would be an instinctive response, not a love response. And so he hides his glory. I was using the illustration of a, a billionaire who has a son who goes to college. He flies in on the private jet, drives up in his Lamborghini. He's got an entourage following him around campus. He's going to have every girl wanting to meet him. But what if he lays all that aside? Drives up in an old clunker, got holes in his jeans. The uppity girls are going to ignore him. But then there's a girl that likes to study with him in the library. They eat together in the cafeteria. They get to become friends. She takes heat from the clique for hanging around this nobody guy. But she believes in him. They fall in love. They get engaged. And then he says, hey, I want to take you back to meet my dad. And they're like driving up to this castle mansion. And the girl's like, whoa, you didn't tell me about all this. He knows that she loves him for him, not because of all of his stuff. So God sent his son down, born in a manger. It says in Isaiah 53, there's nothing in his countenance that would make us want to desire him. He only wants those that love him for him. But God's a just God. That's the other part. When we say God's a God of rules, you know, laws of planetary motion, laws of God, he's a God of, of laws. And he has laws for human behavior. And, uh, and what does it mean that God is just? That means he has to judge every sin, Right? 
every single different law of nature, if you violate it, there's a consequence. And so, so for God to be just, he has to judge every sin. If God does not judge a sin, he's effectively giving consent to the sin. In common law, it's called the rule of tacit admission. And you've seen it in wedding ceremonies where the pastor says, anybody that's against this wedding, speak now or forever hold your peace. If you're in the audience holding your peace, your, your silence is giving consent to the wedding. You're si and so if there are sins going on and God is silent, he's effectively giving consent. If there are unjust acts going on and he is silent, he's denying his just nature. He's denying himself. And God is not going to deny himself, so he's gonna, he has to judge. To be true to himself, he has to judge every single sin. Which means if he made free will creatures to love him, but then they, they mess up, he's going to have to smash them because they sinned against him. So he came up with a plan of redemption. What's the plan? His own son would become the lamb to take the judgment for all of our sins. And so the Bible has Abraham and Isaac going to the top of Mount Moriah. And Isaac says, Father, we have the wood for the sacrifice and we have the coals for the sacrifice, but where is the sacrifice? And Abraham says, Son, God himself will provide a sacrifice. Right? So his only beloved son, right? We love our sons. And his only beloved son became the lamb. So... Only as a man could God die. Only as a man could God hang on the cross and pay for our sins. Jesus became man. And it says a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Jesus experienced that day on the cross as if it was a thousand years. You know, the book of Revelation well, I'm still trying to figure it out, but one thing seems clear. It's God that's pouring out the vials of judgment. Right? Lamb breaks the seal. The angel throws the center down. Another angel blows the trumpet. God, why is that? Well, God's a just God. He has to judge every sin that he missed along the way. So you can't get 10,000 years into eternity and say, God, there were these sins back there and you never judged them. You were silent. Were you giving consent to those sins? Is there a part of you that's unjust? Nuh-uh. The smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. And the angels cry out, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. Nobody is ever going to question that God judges sin. But in that sense, Jesus had the book of Revelation judgment poured out on his head. He took the judgment for everybody's sins. Every sin that everybody would ever do, he took the judgment for it. That's why he's sweating drops of blood in the garden. I have a degree in accounting, so I like things that balance. And so an eternal being, Jesus, who's innocent, suffering for a finite, limited period of time, is equal to all of us finite beings who are guilty suffering for an eternal period of time. Let me say that again. An eternal being who's innocent suffering for a finite period of time is equal to all of us finite beings who are guilty suffering for an eternal period of time. Infinity times finite equals finite times infinity. Right? An unlimited being suffering for a limited period of time is equal to all of us limited beings suffering for an unlimited period of time. Jesus literally suffered the equivalent of eternal damnation in all of our places, and he's the only one that could have done it. And out of love for the Father and out of love for you and me, he took the wrath of God that we all deserve upon himself. 
That's why, that's how you and I can approach this almighty, all-powerful, perfect, eternal, just God with no consciousness of sin. With no hesitancy. Because he's blotted out all your transgressions. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed you from your sins. He's thrown all your sins in the depths of the sea. That's why we sing praise songs to Jesus. That's why we approach this perfect God through his son. That's how we can be in heaven and not be there because we're good enough, because we're not good enough. You know, as long as you think your relationship with God is based on you being good enough, you will always have this nagging thought in the back of your head, did I do enough? And that very thought will cause you to hesitate coming into the presence of the Lord. But the moment you believe that Jesus paid for it all, all of it, yes, all of it, all of it, yes, all of it, the moment you believe that, it's like two magnets, they're stuck together, one of them turns and it's repelling. But the moment you believe this, it's like your magnet turns back around, boom, and you're in the presence of the Lord. And you feel his love and acceptance. And then his magnetism is through you and you're, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And then the Holy Spirit reaches out through you to a lost and dying world and you're doing all these good works, but it's not you doing, it's him doing it through you. And people are attracted to you, but they're not attracted to you. They're attracted to the Holy Spirit in you. They're attracted through Jesus to the Father. So it's the same pile of works. But instead of you doing them, hoping to earn brownie points with God, it's him doing it through you. And his yoke is easy, his burden's light. So today, we've talked about history, 6,000 years. We talked about, you know, top down, bottom up. We talked about how God wants to have a personal relationship with you. But from his point of view, he, he created us, and he gives us the opportunity to love him. He won't force us, but he wants us. The more you love someone, the more you want that someone to love you back. God loves you infinitely. He has an infinite desire for you to love him back, but he can't force you. He won't force you. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Today, let the, lo the Lord tug on your heart, respond to that, and accept his love and forgiveness. Amen. I'll turn it back over to Pastor. Thank you.